rich and I think I could probably spend um, the rest of the day and maybe much of tomorrow answering them all. <laughs> uh, but there's a nice one here. My question is, why don't I have questions? Should I? <laughs> and uh, the answer, it's fine not to have any questions. It's absolutely fine and uh, don't worry about it. And as to why you don't have any questions, don't worry about that either. <laughs> you will. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll come. But it's not, it's not a sign of attainment either to have questions or not to have questions. <laughs> You're doing fine. <laughs> I'm just going to have to sort of pick. It's from Susan Cyphers. Can you further clarify the question asked of Ajahn Jamyan the other night? If there is no self, then who or what is reborn? Is there a soul that provides the vehicle for the flow of continuity of causes, causes conditions from one life to the next? Thank you. This is a big one, and um, obviously different uh, traditions have different ways of viewing this, um, and even within Buddhism there are different ways of it being talked about, but my understanding, um, according to the tradition that I've been trained in, is that actually consciousness, I think I've spoken about this briefly before, is, is, is not a, a fixed, continuous thing. It's like a series of discrete mind moments, if you like. And, um, but it has the appearance of continuity because we're not sufficiently mindful yet to see the distinct, separate um, moments of consciousness. Um, so, in fact, um, rather than seeing it like a co continuous flow that um, will continue after, after death into some future rebirth, um, an image that I've heard used is like just uh, of a candle flame uh, and the moment of death is like the extinguishing of uh, one candle but then the immediate lighting of another one. Um, so it's the, the flame is, is passed from, from um, body to body, if you like. Um, so the self still remains like an illusion and there is an illusion of continuity, but um, what is actually, uh, like at the moment of death, what actually happens is that there's a, 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 if there is still some residual energy or desire for being, uh, then that is that desire that will take you into some future birth, rather than any self. Um, it's more just like a, a flow of energy from one uh, body to another. Um, if, on the other hand, uh, one has attained to a place of perfect understanding uh, of the nature of existence, then at the moment of death, uh, there's the relinquishment of that desire for a future rebirth, um, or the conditions to support a future rebirth simply aren't there. And so at the moment of death, uh, there's a, it's like an extinction um, of the flame, 
you know, final extinction of the flame. There's no need for it to be relit anywhere else. And uh, the body can just quietly return to its elements. So that's the way I've heard it described in our tradition. Um, and perhaps the best way of you know, coming to a deeper understanding of this is just to look at the process of rebirth as it happens in the course of our own existence. Um, so rather than thinking in terms of you know, the lifetime of this body, the death of this body, and then finding some future body, um, we take rebirth all the time. Um, every moment we're being reborn uh, into some future state of existence when we identify with the conditions of mind and body. So if we um, want something, you know, we, we want uh, some future happy mind state, then if we attach to that desire, then when we experience that future happy mind state, it's like re being reborn as a happy person. Uh, that's a, a kind of rather a crude way of describing it. But I suggest just really um, contemplating rebirth and the arising of self moment by moment um, in this lifetime rather than uh, worrying too much about um, some future um, bodily existence, but more just the future existence as we experience it. You know, even in the course of this question and answer session, you may find many different selves arising <laughs> and ceasing. Um, so we would say that there isn't um, a, a soul, that there isn't um, an enduring being uh, that um, reincarnates. I mean, we use the phrase rebirth rather than reincarnation. So it's not like there's something that finds a body and is uh, reincarnated, but more that rebirth arises um, as long as there's that desire for um, existence um, floating around. I think that's the best I can do with that one. Would you please say more about the second, third, and fourth foundations of mindfulness? <laughs> <laughs> and how they can help us? That's a question from Judy P. Phillips. Judy Phillips. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you asked. Um, because yes, the body, it's quite, it, it's reasonably easy to get a hold of how that works as a foundation for mindfulness. And I certainly gave a lot of instruction about that. Um, the others are a little bit more subtle and uh, not quite so easy to, to get a handle on in terms of practice. Um, I'll try to give some pointers because um, I think that's the best I can do. Pointers and the encouragement just to, you know, even if you don't completely get it this time, there's going to be a tape. And so you can have a listen to the tape and, uh, you know, maybe little by little, there'll be a sense of how it works in practice. So the second one is Vedana, Vedana Nupasana. Vedana is feeling, uh, which is different from emotion. And usually in our language, we, when we talk about you know, having one's feelings hurt, it means there's some kind of an emotional reaction. Um, whereas Vedana is just simply a noting pleasant, 
unpleasant or neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Um, certainly emotions often, well, I mean, they, they, they're always associated with one or other of these feelings. You know, so if you're feeling inspired, um, happy, that's usually a pleasant feeling. If you're feeling discouraged, bored, depressed, doubtful, irritated, these are usually what we would describe as unpleasant feelings. Um, but that's not a hard and fast rule, necessarily. So I invite you to investigate for yourself when you're uh, in the middle of some emotional state. Is this pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Or is it just kind of neutral? With feeling, the traditional teaching says, well, with pleasant feeling, there's a, an attraction to it. We want more of it. A kind of, we reach out to grasp pleasant feeling. With unpleasant feeling, we want to get away from it, want to get rid of it. These are the uh, instinctive reactions when we're not mindful. With neutral feeling, we, we can just go to sleep. We don't notice. So when we use Vedana as a foundation for mindfulness, I mean, like you might decide to use a period of meditation just to contemplate Vedana, say outside when you're doing walking meditation or in the hall here sitting or for, um, in the course of a day, you might want to just say, okay, today I'm going to be attentive to Vedana. So instead of just falling into habitual reaction, uh, see if you can notice this is unpleasant feeling. Or if you have fallen into a struggle, see if you can establish mindfulness by just simply noting unpleasant feeling rather than following that struggle for things to be otherwise. It can be very illuminating just to try to notice neutral feeling. Because as I said, those are times that we often just go to sleep, we don't notice. And so in the course of the day, you can contemplate neutral feeling, the times when nothing very much is happening, there's no great passion either to get something that you really want or to get rid of something that you really don't want, but things are just, you know, reasonably okay. Uh, so you can also use that as a contemplation. And you can contemplate, well, is it really neutral? Is there really neither pleasant nor unpleasant? And to see how even something like the breath, which generally speaking is fairly neutral, but if we're really present with it, uh, is it neutral? Or is it sometimes just slightly pleasant and other times slightly not so pleasant? Is the in-breath pleasant and the out-breath unpleasant? <laughs> you, can, you can play with it in that way. So Vedana as a, as a foundation for mindfulness. Uh, jitta, the, the mind itself, the um, state of mind. And to appreciate that this is that we can make a distinction between the state of mind and the mind objects. Uh, state of mind is like the uh, mental climate or the atmosphere. Um, and as I was saying when I talked about this the other day, that uh, the traditional teaching talks about knowing the contracted mind is contracted, knowing the expansive mind is expansive. Um, knowing the agitated mind as agitated, uh, the doubting mind as uh, just, just recognizing the, the quality, the, the mental climate. Um, <clears throat> I've found this useful in my own practice. Sometimes 
you know, there's just a kind of a mood of <clears throat> just not feeling very bright and positive. And I can easily just get pulled into a struggle with that, wanting, you know, just feeling that it's not right, this is not right, this is not okay, things are not okay, I'm not okay, my practice is not okay, nothing is okay. And just actually stopping that by saying, okay, um, what is the mind like right now? And even using a label, um, using some metaphor to describe it, uh, can be helpful as a way of just bringing the awareness to the state of mind. So, you know, metaphors of the weather can be very handy, like, you know, noticing what the weather's like today. It's kind of a bit dull and cloudy and, um, you know, that that can be actually quite a sweet, sort of slightly faintly melancholy state. And so sometimes the mind is like that. Other times it's really bright and sunny. Other times it's stormy, you know, and kind of just agitated or restless. And just seeing if you can uh, begin to develop a, a vocabulary for just the mind, the kind of subtle shifts in the quality of mind, and it was being attentive to how that changes throughout the day. And I think uh, probably when I was talking about it before, the kind of you can actually notice <laughs> sometimes you can be feeling very expansive and kind of at ease with everything, and then somebody will say something that upsets you, mm-hmm. or you'll remember something that is really disturbing. And immediately there's a kind of contraction that happens. It's almost like a physical thing. So to begin to notice that, and then the mind objects, which are like visitors. Uh, Usually, um, when we're not mindful, we're so identified with the mind objects that they take up the whole of the mind space. You know, if the mind is filled with thought, that's all there seems to be. But when we begin to make a distinction, we begin to see that we can create a sense of spaciousness around the thoughts. We can notice a thought arising, we can notice the space around it. Uh, We can examine it and notice when it's left. We can also uh, contemplate the teachings um, as dhammas, as mind objects. So you can quite deliberately bring up, say, the um, like the Four Noble Truths. Like if you're really struggling with something, you can say, well, this is suffering. <laughs> First Noble Truth. That can be very helpful, just to, to use the, the contemplation of the teaching as a way of bringing awareness to what's happening, rather than getting lost into some kind of reaction to it. So I think that's all I'd like to say for now about the second, third and fourth foundations. Just to go over the list again, the first foundation is body, contemplation of body, and many, many different ways of doing that. The second one, contemplation of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And any state has a corresponding feeling associated with it. Any state of mind or body, any perception, uh, any sankhara, mental formation, has an associated feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Then the mind itself, the kind of vessel, if you like, the container, 
Um, just one more thing about the mind itself. It's, it's fun <laughs> as a contemplation. Uh, just whether the, the body, you know, whether, the, whether the mind is in the body or is the body in the mind? That's just a question for you. <laughs> <laughs> just beginning to get a sense of the fact that the mind can expand to the uh, limits uh, of consciousness, I mean, to, to the limits of the universe, or it can contract down just to the a tip of a, a, a pin or a needle. We we're very, very focused on the, on, the, on the breath, say, the tip of the nose. The mind is really just very one-pointed, po- one or it can be very, very expansive. So the mind itself as a foundation for mindfulness, and then mind objects, which can be a noting of the kind of thinking, the thoughts that you're having, or using an aspect of the teaching as a way of establishing that quality of presence, rather than being lost, caught into a reactivity. So we can actually, even we can use the hindrances that I spoke about this morning as mind objects, as a way of just anchoring the awareness with, okay, right now, this is what lust feels like, this is what aversion feels like, this is doubt, this is restlessness, this is sleepiness, sloth torpor, however you want to describe it. This is, this, is, this is how it tastes. This is how it manifests. So I hope that answers the question, Judy. It's from Anne, Anne S, is it? Anne Sung, Sung? Okay. Dear Ajahn Chandasiri, during walking meditation, do you, re- do you recommend keeping the attention on the feet and the bodily experience of walking or might one also expand one's awareness as we have been doing while sitting? And the short answer to that question is yes. Um, I, when I teach walking meditation, I recommend focusing the attention on the feet and the bodily experience of walking, just because I think when we first start practicing with a walking meditation, it's helpful to have something very obvious to focus on. Um, and that's actually that's what I do in my walking meditation. I focus on the feet or the body, and uh, so I tend to teach what I do myself. But there's absolutely nothing to say that um, one can expand one's awareness and one can contemplate um, body, feelings, mind, mind objects in exactly the same way. So I think I've also spoken about how you can, like when you're walking, you can just say who's walking, or is anybody there? Or you can also use a kind of mental noting, like sometimes if I'm caught up in obsessive worrying, sometimes as I walk along the path, you know, I can notice the mind struggling with this worry, and then I can just go worry, 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 <laughs> as a way of just like playing with the mind and playing with the mind state. So there's many, many different things that you can do. Um, the important thing, though, is to really make sure that you don't get caught, carried away from the present moment. So to, you know, whatever you can use to bring the awareness into the moment while you're doing walking meditation is what I would recommend. Okay? 
And a nice, I've been experiencing a lot of gratitude for the teachings and this opportunity to practice and for the awakening of sanity, some in brackets, <laughs> that has resulted. Could you say something about the feeling of gratitude? Uh, this is a very wholesome quality and um, it's in the Mahamangala Sutta, it comes as one of the greatest blessings. Um, it's a very beautiful quality, it's an uplifting quality, um, it's associated with a quality of well-being and definitely something to be cultivated. So if you're feeling utterly wretched and miserable, I suggest you make a deliberate um, effort to um, contemplate the blessings of your life, to really cultivate a sense of gratitude as an antidote to self-pity, um, despair, uh, dullness, aversion, negativity, um, jealousy, all of these unpleasant things, you can just bring up a sense of gratitude. Um, and uh, yeah, use it as a way of brightening the mind. And if it arises naturally, then just enjoy it. Uh, very, 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 very good, very lovely. And uh, could you please say more about doubt and its antidote? Uh, right now I'm contemplating uh, a feeling of doubt in my own mind that has arisen. <laughs> so we can use doubt to establish the awareness in the present moment or we can allow it to pull us into a state of um, agitation. Shall I do this? Shall I do that? What's the right thing to do? What will be the best thing? Um, it can appear like a very wholesome quality because we want to do the best. We want to make the best use of this opportunity. Um, we can also notice that when we do that, there's a little hook in there. It may be fear, because we, we don't want to waste this opportunity. It may be a subtle kind of greed. We're afraid that we're going to miss, uh, miss the best of the goodies if we make the wrong choice. Uh, I find it helpful. I had some very good advice years ago from a Christian nun. She was a very wise old lady very close friend, and uh, she said, well, you know, if I have a decision to make and I'm not sure what to do, then I, sometimes what I do is I, I ask people who I trust. You know, if I have a, a wise friend um, and I really can't find my way forward with it, I, I'll talk it through with them. And with her, she would pray about it as well. <laughs> And um, I can't actually remember what else she said, but certainly it's all right to consult with people that you trust, that you respect. 
also using the uh, precepts as a guide, also using the um, reflection on the intention. You know, is my intention wholesome or is it unwholesome? You know, if there's an unwholesome intention there, if it's coming from a, a strong desire just to sort things out and be done with the doubt, that's a kind of aversion, isn't it? A negativity. Um, if, on the other hand, the intention is, is wholesome, you know, a genuine um, interest in supporting or helping a situation, then uh, we can follow that. And maybe the most important thing in kind of making a, a decision if there's a doubt is a willingness to take responsibility. So if um, we finally decide what we're going to do, to follow it through, but with the understanding that even if it turns out not to have been the best thing, to say, okay, well, I can take responsibility for that. The most difficult thing, I think, is when we make a decision about something and it turns out not to be the best thing, is the tendency to find someone to blame. You know, okay, well, you know, I did this, but it wasn't really my decision. They, they <laughs> it was because of what she said or, um, or whatever, which just perpetuates a state of, of fear and anxiety. Um, doesn't, doesn't lead to a sense of, of well-being and confidence. So, it's making a decision but being willing to get it wrong. Uh, another very useful thing with doubt is to notice the um, automatic wobble that arises as soon as we've decided something. <laughs> I was once giving a talk on sort of, what's the wobble? <laughs> because uh, that can very easily kind of perpetuate the sense of doubt. You know, you decide something, you say, okay, yes, I'm definitely going to do this. Right, I've decided. Well, I think I'm going to do this. On the other hand, I remember reading somewhere <laughs> that this is better. And of course, so-and-so said that you should never do that. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll do this instead. And then you decide again and then, well, I'm not so sure. You know, when I did that last time, it wasn't so good. <laughs> and it just, it's, it's, it's endless. I find sometimes if I've got a big decision, just giving myself a holiday from deciding can also be useful. You know, say, okay, well, I'm not going to decide until tomorrow. And really be very clear about your determination not to decide until tomorrow. Not to fill up the whole day with, well, maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. I'll think about it, making lists of pros and cons and, you know, give yourself a holiday. And then when the time comes, decide and just follow through. Um, so these are a few strategies um, that I can suggest in regard to working with doubt. Um, but maybe the most important one is just making peace with it. making peace with not knowing what's going to happen. And the decision will, will it'll, it'll arise sooner or later. 
but it's very um, it's a very interesting one because we can suffer so much with 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 doubt with not knowing um, but if we can just really say, okay, right now there is doubt, using it as a foundation for mindfulness. This is what doubt feels like. This is what it, this is what it feels like to know. And then, um, you know, actually taking an interest in it. Sooner or later the decision will get made. You'll do something. <laughs> and either it'll be the right thing or it'll be the wrong thing. And you'll learn from it. Either way. So either way you win. <laughs> Just to see if Sister Chittapala would like to say anything more about that. I, <clears throat> I may just support the last uh, reflection you gave that for me contemplating doubt is somehow the most useful step because I, I have um, tended to really find the best solution for everything, and it was never the best solution. And uh, I, at some point, I got just this image of, I don't know how you call that in English. There's a Greek, Greek mythical serpent, I think it's called Hydra, and German, but in uh, American you say probably Hydra. <laughs> so, and uh, the it's famous for if you cut off its head, uh, twelve new heads are growing. So at some point I realized that <clears throat> if I want to answer kind of a question, that's okay. But I have to be aware that each answer. Uh, brings up 12 new questions. <laughs> so it will be never the end of doubt. And uh, of course, sometimes I have to make decisions and then I consider and I do it as good as possible. And I, I tend not to call it mistake any longer when it's the, the outcome is not what I was expecting. Uh, it's, it's just a learning step. So that makes me quite peaceful most of the times. And just a kind of PS that sometimes there is a result and you think, oh dear, I shouldn't have done that. I always bring up a kind of don't know at that point because very often, sometime later, one realizes that it was exactly the right thing to have done. You know, you might have said something that seemed a bit harsh or mean and uh, sometimes the other person will come back and say, do you remember that conversation we had three weeks ago? It was exactly what I needed to hear. So uh, to actually allow yourself to, to not know whether it was the right thing or not can be helpful, rather than being too quick to judge. Please address under which circumstances it can be appropriate or even productive to share with someone that they have hurt you? And how do you verbalize this with metta? Thank you. The Buddha said that um, there are um, 
See, it was a, he was asked a question one time whether it was okay ever to use speech that was unwelcome and disagreeable. And his response was, um, if what you have to say is truthful, beneficial, and agreeable, no, hang on, if it was truthful and beneficial and yeah, agreeable, you could utter it, knowing the right time and place. If it was truthful, but not beneficial and agreeable, then better not to utter it. If it was not truthful, but would be beneficial and agreeable, better to leave it. If it was truthful and not beneficial and unagreeable, don't say it. If it was untruthful, beneficial, and unagreeable, don't say it. If it was truthful, beneficial, and even if it is unagreeable, then you can say it, but knowing the right time, the right situation. So um, with like giving feedback to somebody, um, it's important to find the right time. Um, the first uh, most important I mean, as I said, that, that it's true. You, you, you make sure you've got your facts right. Um, that it's um, something that you're saying from an in intention, or you, you really believe that it's going to help the person to hear this, um, whatever it might be, or, and it's, it's certainly going to help you to express it. Um, other things that the Buddha said is, you know, is, is there, to notice if there's a heart of kindness. So it's very interesting you ask about how to verbalize this with metta. You have to wait until there's a feeling, let's say, until you've let go of the feeling of aversion or blame that you might feel, or the wanting to put somebody right. Um, if, if there are these things in your heart, then um, it's better just to wait. Um, the result tends to not be so good. So um, to wait until there's a feeling of uh, really um, wanting to uh, support well-being and really caring about your relationship. And I had a situation some years ago where um, you know things were were difficult. I was living with with some friends and. <coughs> Um, I was getting a growing sense of unease um, about how things were, were, were working among us. And I tend to hold back from sharing difficulties. You know, I, 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 it's not something I'm very comfortable doing. But because I really cared about our relationship, it, my, our friendship, it meant too much to me just to kind of let it keep um, sort of happening on this kind of level of kind of disconnection. And so um, I realized I needed to speak about it. And so I waited until there was a situation where I knew that we had plenty of time. I knew we weren't going to be interrupted. Uh, we just had breakfast, so our bellies were full. We were comfortable <laughs> in ourselves. Um, and then when, you know, when all of these circumstances came together, um, I was able to um, talk about 
what I had seen happening, so I was clear about what I was describing. Um, I was clear about how it made me feel, and I was clear that I was actually checking out because I didn't know what they were thinking. So I wasn't making assumptions about what was going on for them. I was just, uh, I don't know if any of you are familiar with NVC, and Marshall Rosenberg, who talks about, you know, first of all, you bring up the observation, what do you notice? You know, what have you observed? What have you heard? What have you seen? Um, not what do you presume? So what have you seen? What have you heard? How has it made, what, what is the result? What, what do you feel when you hear and see these things? So you're not assuming anything about what the other person has in their mind. And it was incredibly helpful in this situation because I described what I'd seen, what I'd heard, how I felt, you know, and, and what, um, you know, what that feeling was based on. Um, like the need, the underlying need. And they, I invited them to respond, you know, you know, is that really what was going on for you? And uh, they, they responded very honestly and they were able to say, well, to some extent it was, but it wasn't because of, you know, what you'd done or... Um, we were able to kind of get into a, a really good discussion about it. And it just, you know, just really cleared the air. I think it's safe to assume that we never want to hurt each other, that if we do hurt one another, it's usually because of some kind of hurting that we're experiencing. Uh, so um, if somebody has hurt us, or if uh, we have experienced pain as a result of something they've done or said, then it can be very helpful if we really care about the relationship to, to find a way to um, bring it out into the open. Um, you know, it can inc it, I think one of the fears is that it's going to destroy the relationship forever if we, if we say something that might be perceived as unpleasant or difficult to receive. But I've always found, you know, when I can do it out of a genuine concern and interest and a love of, you know, that sense of connection and friendliness, that um, the result is always much, much better than if I stay... Um, hemmed in through my own fear of what might happen. I'm quite sure that Sister Chittapala will have something to add for this one. So I'd like to invite her to say some more. It'll, it'll, it'll certainly be useful. Yeah, I must say we have sometimes little NVC training sessions and uh, Ajahn Tanasiri and myself, we were attending and uh, I learned a lot from that, and um, I mean, for myself, I can just say that uh, distinguishing really between the observation and the uh, judgment which comes up in myself, the feelings and, and the underlying judgments, um, so that it was really necessary for me to learn to distinguish between them and not to assume that um, my judgment is in any way um, or my interpretation of the situation is in any way correct. Uh, I mean, as an example, I just can say that I'm, 
I probably like many of you, I've been growing up um, and learned a conditioned response that, you know, that when my mother is angry that I'm the um, cause of her anger. And when she was angry, I, I felt guilty. And so with the closer look at it, that actually um, we get angry not because of the other person, but because of the way we interpret things. And uh, also that we have certain needs which are not met, which make us feel dissatisfied. So it, uh, it, the, the usual response is very mixed. It's all kind of glued together. So we really think, I'm angry because you said that. But if, if I use the um, kind of encouragement of Marshall Rosenberg really to look at what, you know, what is the situation? What can you observe? What is the feeling in yourself which is coming up? And what needs are behind your feelings? Suddenly I could feel that, or I could see that my reaction didn't have much to do with the uh, situation. But really, oh, how to say, that my, my feelings were not determined by the situation, but really by, by my feelings. Uh, by my needs, sorry, yeah. Um, and it's so so enlightening in a way to to observe that in different. I mean, in India, I had several situations where I could really see that you know, when you travel together with somebody, the same situation, one person is not affected by it at all, and the other person is just all over the place with anger. And uh, I, it's only you know, I could enjoy the sunset, and the other person was just so angry. You know that we were kind of using a road which was not the road she thought we would need to drive, and uh, <coughs> so that is really uh, quite quite puzzling to see that you you know that that the same situation you know shoots one person right up into the kind of uh, hell of burning flames. <laughs> and the other person says, what? <laughs> yeah, I think the, the um, four, foundation, four, four foundations of mindfulness are really good training in order to get these responses a bit uh, separated. What is meant by good fortune in terms of rebirth regarding people born into poverty and material hardship versus the wealthy, etc.? Aren't the poor often the most rich in heart, or at least as likely to be? Yeah, I think anybody who visits India will have that sense. Um, that's certainly a time that um, when I first went there in 77, just um, it kind of blew my mind because um, there were all these very wealthy people looking kind of quite bored <laughs> or else being very worried about kind of keeping their possessions, worried that people were going to come and steal them. 
really bound up by their possessions, and then there were the beggars. I have to say that some of the beggars were not fortunate. Some of them really did look very miserable, and they didn't have enough to eat, and they didn't have enough to wear. They had you know, physical, obvious physical pain. and. Um, but there were enormous numbers of them who were just having a really good time. <laughs> uh, really bright, alert, present, and they knew how to enjoy themselves. Um, so it's not like this question about good fortune. My sense is that it's not uh, nearly so simple as, as we make it. You know, that it's not necessarily the people who are rich and successful and beautiful who um, are experiencing um, good fortune. It may be very bad karma to be born uh, wealthy and beautiful and talented. Um, sometimes one has a sense that people who don't have much, who maybe are not so beautiful and not so talented, um, in a way are much better off. So it's more you know, what you make of it, and you have a sense that actually it's, it's much more to do with like the, 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 the character, the, the disposition, the sort of psychological disposition uh, that is the kind of rebirth that we're talking about here. Um, not at all to dismiss the fact that it is quite nice to have, you know, to, like the Buddha always said, that there's no point trying to teach Dharma to people who are starving. You need to actually fill their bellies first, you know, make sure they have the basic essentials. Um, but once they have, you know, if they have that, then then you can teach them. So he doesn't totally um, dismiss uh, the value and the the fact that it is good fortune to have enough and to have a way of making a good livelihood. You know, it's not it's not. A, sometimes people think that well, Buddhists shouldn't have anything at all. <laughs> you know, you should live you know out in the street with nothing. And then you're a good Buddhist give away all your, all your possessions. But it's, it's, um, it's a much subtler kind of good fortune. You know, so you, you have rich people who are very happy and joyful. They have a heart of gratitude. They have, they're, they're generous-hearted. They, they know how to use their wealth. Uh, they knew, know how to use their talents. And uh, that is good fortune. Um, just as, you know, for very poor people who, who know how to, to be glad about the, the things that they have and who are able to use it uh, in a way that, that brings benefit to themselves and to those around them. Um, you know, you can see that that also is good fortune. Whereas people who are rich and mean, or poor and mean and miserable, that has a feeling of being you know, not such good karma. So it seems to be much more to do with the, the disposition. You know, I've seen very poor people who are very, very joyful and blessed. You just get a feeling that they're blessed. Um, and then um, rich people who are blessed also, and poor people who are not blessed, and rich people who are definitely not blessed. So it's not quite so um, clear. Uh, interesting quote that comes to mind where the Buddha talks about, you know, within this fathom-long form, there is the, the world, the beginning, the arising of the world, the ceasing of the world, and the way leading to the cessation of the world. 
and, he, he, and equally with suffering, you know, suffer, uh, within this fathom long form there is suffering, the origin of suffering, cessation of suffering, and the end leading to the cessation of suffering. And you know, recently I've been just really contemplating you know, the way that we create our world, um, just within our own being. And uh, we create the world that we take rebirth in. So, uh, sometimes we have a happy rebirth and sometimes we have a, a wretched rebirth. And if you want to transform a wretched rebirth into a fortunate rebirth, then just uh, count your blessings, bring up a sense of gratitude in the heart, or look around and see if you can actually be of service to others. You know, if I, as I've said already at one, on one occasion, like sometimes the times I'm most miserable, it's when I'm really concerned about my practice, you know, hopeless, you know sort of hopeless case, I'm no good, I'll never be any good. And if I just kind of take a few moments to just, I don't know, straighten something out um, around the monastery or, you know, here, just um, pick up a piece of rubbish or um, make way for somebody, you know, it could be very, very little things uh, that we can do, even just smiling at somebody who looks a bit down, um, just coming out of ourselves, out of our preoccupation with me and mine and have I got enough and you know, realizing that of course we've got enough and that we can be reborn in a heavenly state in, in an instant. The contemplation of Kama, I'm, I'm um, kind of very cautious to say things <laughs> in general because basically I don't know from experience. I mean, I know from reading and um, so what what the the crucial thing with karma is really understanding that karma is is intentional action which has fruits which has uh, consequences i I try to use that pointer for my decisions in the present and not so much a uh, for contemplating or, or thinking about these questions in general. So when I know that what I do has results, then I try to do, uh, to act in a way which has good results and avoid actions which may have not so good results. I think that's the only I really want to say. Okay. <clears throat> Dear Ajahn Chandasiri, can you talk about trusting the knowing? Thank you. I think the first time I had a taste of this was um, many years ago, um, before I was a nun. Um, I was staying with a friend for a few months and I was very um, struck by the way that she didn't really seem to plan very much. I was very used to kind of planning things out, thinking what I was going to do and um, 
quite organized in a way, and I noticed, it wasn't always the case actually I have to say, but that there were times when she seemed to have an ability just to um, allow things to happen. And uh, I was very struck by this because there seemed to be a sense of ease, a sense of happiness, and somehow or other things seemed to work out in a very good way. Um, and I saw how burdensome it was to always be kind of thinking and planning and sorting things out. Later on, uh, in the monastery and you know, in community, um, I could see my mind uh, when it was in a planning mode, kind of sort of wanting things to go a certain way, you know, being very clear about the kind of result that I wanted, uh, and uh, noticing what happened if I <coughs> allowed myself to follow that. Uh, what it was like to actually get what I wanted when I'd manipulated it. Because there were times that I really very much wanted something to happen a certain way, and then sometimes it did. And I gradually began to have a sense that I'd somehow rather lost the plot when that happened. You know, it, it never really felt very good. And I found that uh, when I could actually let go, you know, I, I might have a sense of, well, it'd be really nice if this happened, or I'd really like that to happen. Uh, but when I could actually um, let go of that desire, that kind of tendency to kind of want to control things, that um, the result was much, much better. And it, over time, I have um, come to trust um, that quality of presence uh, much more than any amount of thinking and planning and manipulating of things. Um, my heart, as a result, is much lighter. I enjoy life much, much more. And it's much more exciting, much more interesting, because <laughs> I, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Um, and even if things seem to go wrong, when we're in that state of presence, when we're mindful, uh, there's a way of responding that um, there's a sense of ease, there's a sense of presence that kind of knows how to respond. Um, and just somehow or other things tend to work out much, much better. This doesn't mean that we don't sometimes have a very clear sense of um, you know, what, what would be helpful for us. Um, I mean, it's interesting, this whole thing with the Marshall Rosenberg training. I mean, I found it incredibly difficult to acknowledge that I had any needs. You know, they have these four stages, like observation, feeling, which is not the same as Wadena, by the way. Like, it's, it's like uh, feeling angry or feeling sorrowful or feeling frightened. It, it, uh, they, you know, they use feeling as in terms of the emotions. And then the underlying need that um, has not been met or that has been met. And uh, it was a long time before I could actually allow myself to acknowledge that there were things that I needed <laughs> or things that I appreciated, put it that way.
and that it was all right to acknowledge these and to take steps towards having these needs met. Um, so there is a place for, for speaking out if one wants a particular thing to happen, but to speak out on the understanding that it may not uh, come about. Um, but that if we really allow ourselves to, to trust in the awareness, in the knowing, that um, whatever does happen will um, be for the best. Uh, for the best, by that I mean that we will, one will maintain um, a sense of presence and the well-being that naturally arises when one is fully present with things as they are. So it's a gradual um, training, this um, going for refuge. Uh, we may have glimpses of it and we test it out, and then as we test it out we become more confident that this is um, a way of living that brings um, a positive uh, result for us in our lives, uh, that is uh, liberating from that kind of burden of always having to think and plan and hold things the way that we feel they should be. We begin to have a sense of just how burdensome that is. Um, and that we just don't have to do it in that way. So it's learning how to hold things lightly. You know, our good ideas, our plans, our, our wanting, just to hold it rather lightly. And uh, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. But that's all right. I'm going to fumble around for another one. Would you please offer suggestions or guidance for working with, firstly, recurrent flashbacks and memories of traumatic experiences, and secondly, of associations, relationships with loved ones from the past, family, friends, etc. So we're talking about memory, really, and um, the tendency of, like, particularly in retreat, for things to just come up and to find ourselves reliving, um, re remembering, like, the sweet memories of childhood or growing up or our first love affair or our first romance or um, positive uh, things. Um, you know, people who were very uh, special to us. Um, I seem to be going to the second one first, and just to realise that this is this is natural. Um, so if you know if during the retreat you've found that this has happened a lot, just to to realise that it's a function of of mind to remember. It's normal, like what happens to us in our lives makes an impression. It makes an imprint. And um, usually in daily life, um, we don't actually have, there's not the time or the leisure to, to process every single thing that happens to us. <clears throat> Dreaming is one way uh, that we deal with these things, like during our, our sleep we can find ourselves having sort of weird and wonderful dreams about things, which is like the, the mind's way of making sense 
of what has happened, processing it. Um, but a lot of things just don't really um, have the attention, perhaps, that they're asking for. So, like a retreat time is like a time that these things do arise for us. Sometimes we can experience, you know, I remember one story Ajahn Sumedho said about a, you know, a man of, I don't know, 35, 40, who, you know, in a retreat suddenly just found himself uh, inconsolable, just experiencing this incredible grief because of the death of his mother that had happened when he was a child. And being a boy, of course, boys don't cry. <laughs> so he'd never really had a chance to feel the incredible sorrow and sense of emptiness and loss over that particular bereavement. So at the age of 35, 40, he found himself just crying like a, like a child. So this is something that can happen. Uh, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, might be a bit embarrassing, but in a situation like this, we have the permission to um, allow these things to come up. Also, um, there can be these recurrent flashbacks or memories of traumatic experiences. And um, with mindfulness, we can uh, often deal with these in the same way. You know, just in our meditation, just allowing them into consciousness, um, cultivating, um, aware of the um, associated emotion, um, fear, um, feeling of hurt, feeling of grief. Uh, and it can be very um, insightful because often we find with these things that it's because of these experiences that we relate to life in particular ways. You know, maybe we've never been able to trust, you know, authority figures or older women or um, older men or... Um, yeah. So if, if these things arise for us, it, it can be very, um, you know, we can uh, learn a lot from them. It can also just be the, uh, the, the mind's way of making sense of something that has happened to us. Um, like times when I've been sick or when I had an accident, I noticed, you know, for years afterwards, a kind of replay of this event. And it's almost as though even the body um, has a need to make sense of things. It's almost like there's a shock uh, that happens and um, that just is released very slowly. And one of the monks had a very um, awful experience. I mean, he, his father committed suicide in, in a very awful way. And uh, so he had the memory of you know, seeing his father. And uh, at that time, he went into a state of shock that was never really dealt with. And then years later, um, when he was watching um, a video, I think, of an autopsy or something with the other monks, he just went into a complete state of shock. And, um, you know, practically stopped breathing, you know, and got very, very cold. And, uh, and it was obviously quite alarming for the people around him. And, uh, but it was very clear to him that it was just because of dealing with something that had, hadn't really properly been digested. 
So we are very, um, we're very impressionable, and um, the mind, the body finds many different ways of um, dealing with with shock, with trauma, and some of them are effective, um, and some of them are perhaps a little bit dysfunctional. It's like that the whole being does the best it can. So. Um, in meditation or in daily life, we may find these things coming up. And as I always say, mindfulness is the best solution. Um, If we can be present with it, if we can actually allow ourselves to feel what we're feeling and stay present with it while it kind of plays itself out, um, it may be that we need some extra help which is where um, some of the therapies that are on offer these days can be can be helpful. Um, it's really important, though, if we if we um, go through a therapeutic process, that we don't end up just creating a whole sense of self around our past. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, when you talk to people, you have a sense that they've just uh, used the therapy to kind of create a whole sense of well, of course, I I have this terrible trauma and. This is why I am the way I am, as a kind of excuse for all of their um, uh, stuckness. Um, so to be able to use it as a as a way of just processing uh, the experience. Um, so I tend not to put too much importance on the actual storyline, because that's about self. Um, sometimes the uh, techniques that focus more on body are, are helpful because the body is less personal. Um, I think maybe to invite Sister Chittapala, we, I just noticed we only have a few more minutes at this time, but I'd like to hear what she has to say about this. And then the other questions I shall read through carefully and um, hopefully they'll come, there'll be a way of tying them up in the talk this evening. And if I haven't, then uh, we'll make a time that they're dealt with. Or you may find that the answers actually just come by themselves. But I'd like to just hear from Chittapala about this uh, flashbacks. And do you have anything to say? Would you like to say something? I could say something. Mm. Yeah, as I had a few flashbacks. <laughs> um, uh, especially during phases of more intense meditation, it can happen um, that things just pop up. And I, I must say, especially connected with breathing and also um, focusing on, on body sensations. So I realized that, that some pains, when I tried just to you know, allow them and make space for them, and suddenly these areas in my body started speaking by just releasing memories. And um, sometimes that was easy and sometimes that wasn't easy because I didn't understand that. Um, so when it was easy, I could just kind of, like in a movie, you just let it run through and um, then anyway, it's gone. I just needed acknowledgement in a way. But with other things, I didn't have the capacity to hold it, so there was a lot of fear and um, resistance, I suppose. Um, 
so that was rather frightening then. And I mean, I was lucky, lucky that I could speak about it and um, just having somebody who listens without judgment could help. But I also have made the experience that sometimes um, there's more professional um, kind of listening needed because uh, especially with when we, we are on retreat together and uh, we offer to listen to each other, sometimes the other person is so affected that you don't really want to put it on them, so it's better to uh, speak with somebody who who's kind more in, in the therapeutic field and, and used to hold things and teach you how to hold, learn to hold that yourself. Um, so in, in a way what I learned is that meditation is meant to bring up a few things and that it's um, good to start sometimes with um, shorter periods of meditation just in order to establish enough mindfulness or, or strength of mindfulness or we call it container so that if things come up we are not completely blown over. So we, I, for me in the beginning what was really helpful was something Ajahn Shah said, you know, whatever happens it's just the mind, it's just mind stuff. And actually that helped. It, I mean, it, it sounds like nothing, but it actually helped to, to not make more out of it. And, and um, But sometimes it's good to learn to embrace things in, and actually be willing to feel it. But for, in order to do that, you need to have built up a bit, a bit more capacity of holding even very your mind states which have been overwhelming in the past, especially as a child or, or at the time when that happened to us. So it's good not to start with a heavy weight in the beginning. And it's good to ask for advice before we make up too much of it in our minds. Mm. Yeah, I think this is what I can say. Shall I read out the other questions so that you know what's still kind of floating around? And then we'll um, break for the meal. There's a question about our life as a nun, going forth into homelessness, living the life of a mendicant. Please talk about how you practice in this way yet have the ability to stay grounded. <laughs> the Buddha Dhamma Sangha is the safe, secure refuge of all beings. Question mark of animals, of people who do not know Buddha Dhamma, of poor practitioners, of people who do not have the ability to be conscious of themselves due to mental or emotional disability. How can this be true? Um, an ethical question. Oh, this is one about the exhibition from China at Boston Science Museum, a collection of corpses reduced to muscles and bones and nerves, etc. 
For my high school students, this would be a tremendous learning experience. But what about the objectification and the dubious source of the bodies? Question from Deborah. Uh, can you please offer some thoughts about how to avoid confusing aspirations with craving, becoming, or trying to get rid of? Thank you. Also, I love considering aspiration as an aspect of Sangha. <laughs> that was a comment, that last one. Dear Ajahn Chandrasiri, how do you cultivate faith? And can you make a distinction between cultivation and awareness in practice and when each is appropriate? Thank you, Tom. And if there's enough time, please talk about the part of the evening chanting when we bow and make amends to the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha. Thank you. We'll see what we can do. 